My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today I'm joined by Nina Power. She is a philosopher, a cultural critic, um, a social theorist, and uh, Ivan Illich educator and popularizer most recently, uh, and author of The One-Dimensional Woman and the upcoming uh, What Do Men Want? Masculinity and Its Discontents. Welcome, Nina. Thanks. Hi, Alex. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm very happy to, to talk to you because I feel like um, you have um, died, you have Dived? Man, I'm sorry, my, my, my mommy brain is a little bit weird at, at the moment. You have explored uh, a lot of territory in, um, in, in the, the world of, of the interpretation of, of gender. Um, and um, you have a book about women out, and now you have a book about men out. And, um, and which, which one was most controversial? I have a feeling <laughs> that, that I, I know the answer, but, you know, it's... Uh, you know, you're you're exploring these two, and you I have this this experience of you know of, of of diving into both worlds. So which which one has gotten you in trouble? Well, more? I I mean the the book on men isn't out yet, right? So I don't know like what if any the response will be. But I I think you know the the book on men is an attempt to be reasonable, which itself in the current climate is controversial, paradoxically. Um, you know, to try to be balanced rather than polemical is actually uh, seen as potentially problematic. Uh, so nuance is out, you know, humour is out, playfulness is, you know, suspicious. Um, and I think, you know, the other book on feminism was like from 2009 and it predates a lot of the more recent discussions around gender and, and kind of developments, quote unquote, in feminism, mainstream feminism. Um, and it's really a book against kind of consumerism and the way in which a certain version of feminism was basically being sold to women in order to convince them to be in the workforce and to act in particular ways, like, you know, to become kind of consumerist and to sort of sell themselves as employees or as sort of sexual beings. And, you know, and I think a lot of that has just gotten a lot worse. But also some of the kind of discussion around gender has completely transformed in ways that I didn't think see at all. Um, and yeah, so I think my my initial book isn't particularly controversial. I mean, it's a bit annoying. I mean, it annoyed a few people, but not really because I think my target was kind of capitalism. You know, I was critiquing consumer capitalism and that's fine. Um, you're allowed to do that. Um, it's a kind of victimless <laughs> critique in a way. Um, but I think the book on men will be more controversial Partly, as I said, because it's attempting to be reasonable, I'm not trying to slam men. I'm not trying to say that all masculinity is toxic. I'm not kind of going along with this narrative, which I think has also become completely out of hand, which is to sort of demonize men as a category. Um, and I think that I'm trying to, in a way, understand sexual difference, which is controversial when I say that men and women exist and I say that they they are um we live in a mixed world but there are important differences between the sexes 
Um, and even to sort of start with sex is, is often seen as quite controversial these days, I suppose. Um, and I want, but I want to say that men and women can get along and they do get along and that most of the time we have this kind of interesting partnership and that to demonize one side or the other is extremely unhelpful and it will kind of destroy the social fabric and and families and and so on so it's a much more centrist book in some ways than the earlier one it does feel like centrism or um like you said you know the acceptance of of the fact that you know there there is a polarity that 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 polarity is healthy that it's natural <laughs> that it exists in nature and you know ex- ex- extends into into the human and cultural domain that's probably one of the more controversial things you can say like being a centrist on these matters is not uh, is not acceptable because um, essentially the narrative is that you know the, the battle of the sexes you know, rages on and uh, women are always on the back foot and they may never gain gain the ground they've lost because, you know, there's something systemic, something murky uh, afoot. So um, you said before we, we started this conversation that you, that you received a, a bit of pushback and that, you know, the, the launch of the book has been, um, you know, uh, um, postponed for, for a long time. So um, I wonder what, what part of uh, your, your argument was, uh, was the spiciest or most, uh, <laughs> most hard to well. digest. I think with a lot of these attempts at cancellation, which kind of anyone pretty much in the like public sphere, however small their sphere is, gets these days. Like, I mean, a lot of it's completely stupid because they haven't read the book. Like the people who are trying to cancel it don't know what, in fact, I, I say. But in a way, it doesn't matter to them. Right. Like, so, you know, these people just kind of say, well, she said this once or I'm going to say that she's a neo-Nazi or whatever. I mean, all of this absolute nonsense. But it's, it's a mark of kind of desperation, really, on the part of people doing this attempted cancellation and in any case it, it hasn't worked um but I think it's obvious that a lot of institutions like big publishers and so on are very worried about these kinds of things you know they're worried about but negative publicity they're worried about you know being mobbed they're worried about you know causing potential upsets and I I think there's a question a discussion to be had in general about like who is being offended on you know on what basis are they really being offended are people taking offense on behalf of others or are people sometimes using these politics to enact their own sadistic desires you know there's a lot of kind of deep psychology going on and I think quite a lot of people are trying to think about this in terms of pathological behavior like this is very familiar human behavior anthropologically in terms of mobbing and scapegoating and you know rivalry and you can read René Girard and you know there are different ways of understanding this but I think and and I think more and more people are aware of like cancel culture like it wasn't even a, a used phrase particularly a few years ago but now I think people are more aware of the tactics and that may be less effective. Like you can't just go around calling everyone you don't like a Nazi. Like it just, it's just, you know, intellectually bankrupt. And, you know, people like Judith Butler are trying to say that anyone who has any issue with uh, any discussion to do with sex and gender are basically on the side of the far right. I mean, this is just a desperate, um, a desperate argument and has no basis in reality. Like in the UK, the vast majority of women probably wouldn't even call themselves feminists but, you know, mothers and wives who are, you know, have legitimate questions and worries about this new ideology, the idea that they're somehow, you know, being getting money from far right organisations or, or have anything in common is just is just absurd. And even the spectre of the far right is is kind of it's never really filled out like it just 
plays this role of like the bogeyman and you know that the right is not what the left says it is basically i mean after after everything you've you've gone through would you still associate with the with the label of, of feminist would you still call yourself a feminist yeah i mean i in in some ways and i think my allegiance has always really been to a kind of second wave feminism but even then not necessarily the mainstream aspect of the second wave insofar as that makes sense i, I think the second wave is where Feminism posed the most interesting questions um, philosophically and politically and ontologically, um, questions about what it means to be a woman in society and what it actually means to, to have a female body and, and all of these sorts of things. Um, there was a kind of moment, late 60s, early 70s, where there was a kind of explosion of writing and thought and, you know, some of it's all over the place, some of it's outdated, some of it's got huge holes and problems, but you know, there was a kind of moment. Um, and I'm quite interested in this idea of like psychedelic feminism, like what what like a really trippy feminism might be um, that would hold on to the reality of sexual difference and something almost kind of like esoteric and weird about what it means to be female <laughs> um, that, that is slightly at a distance from some of these kind of legal and social questions, like the way in which you know, like the, the sort of gender battle is going on at the moment around, you know, which is important, but around things like um, sex segregated spaces and all of those sorts of things. I want to sort of go into a weirder place with it um, and to, yeah, defend something very, very like strange and enchanted about femaleness um, and draw on some of the, the weirder second wave that try to look at myth and magic and and stuff. <laughs> Well, that that sounds uh, really interesting. I've I don't think I've uh, I've encountered any of of those works uh, up to this point. Um, I'm I, I want to chat to you a bit about your first book uh, because um, I mean I I I I feel like I, I get kind of the, the the main point. I haven't I haven't read it. I have to admit. Um, but it takes about five minutes to read. It's literally like <laughs> like a really short essay. Okay, well, I I will then. Um, no, no, you don't have to try. I think the, the the interesting part is that you said you know it it is uh, it is in a way not a very woke book. It it talks about themes that would you know maybe draw cancellation at this point, uh, mm. but it is also a critique of capitalism, like you said. And I feel like this is an interesting moment where you can have in a way a right wing critique of capitalism. There is there are a lot of thinkers that are popping up now, Ivan Illich being one of them, uh, you know, Agamben, Lash more as a popularizer of these ideas. Um, and there is forming a right-wing critique of, of uh, consumerism, of, of capitalism. Uh, so, um, and and to me, it feels like, you know, the, the, the idea that we've been sold, you know, this this um, commercial feminism that you see on, on every bookshelf and in every Instagram post at the moment is kind of all about expanding choice and, you know, maximizing that uh, idea of freedom of, you know, you are a woman if you have absolutely all the choices in the known and unknown universe and that the person expand every, with every day. So I wonder what, what your relationship is to the idea of freedom. Like what, what, what is, is freedom to you in, in light of all of this, this exploration that you've done? Um, yeah, no, it's a really good question. I, I think about it quite a lot because, um, you know, you're absolutely right. Like this kind of promise of infinite freedom is also responsible for for the sort of delusional ideas that you can like break free of your body, that you can escape death, you know, kind of this uh, virtual fantasy of like, uh, like freedom in that model is like freedom from any constraint whatsoever. But the old older models of like liberty and so on are actually about 
understanding your own desires precisely so you're not controlled by them. You know, so freedom is freedom from domination, but including your own negative tendencies, whereas kind of consumer capitalism basically implores you to um, go mental with your desires and say like, you know, well, if you like donuts, you can eat 7,000 donuts a week or whatever, if you want to, like, you know, and, and that's what you should do because, you know, what you want is good, but actually most of what human beings want is not good. It's not good for them. It's not good for other people. Um, it's not good for the social whole. So, you know, and obviously we're, we're beyond that sort of idea of virtue or, you know, consumer capitalist societies are also post-religious in many ways you know obviously people still go to church and practice religion but you know largely they're not they're not dominated by religious ideas which might include ideas of constraint and the common good and you know so I mean I think there's an interesting move um towards a kind of um post-liberal politics which um in a way goes beyond the left and right distinction I mean I agree that there is a kind of um there's actually like a long history of a, a right-wing opposition to capitalism. And I think you see it in people like Junger and, uh, and others. And um, it's, it's very obvious that, you know, consumer capitalism is a very narrow and restricting image of, of existence. I mean, it's, it's one that doesn't fulfill a lot of um, things. And of course, then lots of ideas of like myth and other kinds of belonging can, and can come to, to fill in that gap. And so I think, I wouldn't necessarily call kind of Illich and Agamben left or right, simply speaking. I think that there is a kind of position which is beyond that distinction, as we would commonly understand it, um, that forms actually a very, very interesting and important opposition to the regime, right? So like if we think of the regime just being the material world and, and the world as we're supposed to see and accept it, um, the other side of that would be like a, a spiritual dimension or a philosophical dimension or, or imagining a world not in a kind of utopian communist way, like, oh, if only we could get there, then everything would be great. But rather from within that regime, um, thinking about other ways of thinking about things that are like missing or being taken away um, that have a kind of um, enchanted or spiritual um, dimension, I suppose, how to put it, like you know, and sort of noticing the kind of ideological formations that are, are, are dominating our society. So whether we're talking about biopolitics and this idea of like, um, you know, security or safety or all of these terms that have come to dominate a particular um, way of treating populations. Um, so, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, Illich, Gambin and Lash, and, and I suppose they... There is a religious dimension to some of, at least some of those thinkers. Um, and I'm interested increasingly in that because I think that human beings, it's, I think it's very, very hard for people to live without religion. I think the, the liberal idea as it came to be enacted, that in a way everyone has to kind of decide for themselves what their morality is, is actually an enormous ask of people. Yeah. <laughs> And I and I think it's apt to go extremely wrong, which is why you you know have very high levels of um, like addiction and atomization and anomie and you know this is a very common post liberal claim. So you know I'm very interested in people like Alistair McIntyre and um, again he's he and he's someone who's very hard to position as either left or right in some way. It's it's tapping into different traditions and different ways of seeing um, thought and action and morality. That don't that are almost like pre-enlightenmental, but not necessarily reactionary. This this concept keeps keeps cropping up. You know, atomization, atomization. This is this is kind of the the, the modern condition. Um, 
And to me, it feels almost, you know, weird that people don't realize that, you know, pure liberalism is essentially, you know, that that is, you know, the crystallized form of pure liberalism in, in, in reality is atomization because you are the individual who's, you know, customized their, their own experience, you know, at, at the level of spirituality, morality, relationships to other people, what you ingest, how you present your meat suit, how you customize it nowadays. So there's, uh, you know, this is just a, you know, the, the idea that, the, it's the atomization is kind of just um it has a negative connotation but you know this is it you know there's no it's it's just a yeah it's just the the, the matter a matter of fact thing and the fact you know that um in terms of morality like you were saying morality if if it's applied to one single person it's not really morality because morality is essentially a script of, of playing along so it's it's by definition you know already completely retarded <laughs> i have to say this just doesn't work uh, no completely and i think i think a lot of the, for all the post-liberal thinkers it's like this is maybe one of the things they have in common is is a absolute recognition of the relational nature of of human being you know the fact that we are all in relation to one another regardless of a culture that tells us that we're individuals and choosy choicy things um but in fact you know, our, our entire identity, such as it is, is comprised of our relations with others, you know, the, the bonds we choose and the bonds we don't. And we we all have duties to people, right, that we've ha- either we've chosen or that we haven't, you know, or, the, or that we've inherited. Um, and I think to to then try to convince people that the best way to be is somehow not in relation, you know, like if you think about dating apps and the kind of serial um, uh <sighs> I don't know, like the serial commodification of sex in the other, where you're not treating somebody as a an end in themselves, but rather as a means to an end, either to, you know, for pleasure or for your own ego. And, you know, this induces a way of understanding other people as um as as more like things, <laughs> you know, rather than moral agents or or people, you know, with a soul. And um, and I think that kind of um sort of degradation of relationality is something that a lot of people a lot of theorists are now uh, well they have been for a long time but but are really pointing out and responding to and and trying to rethink ideas of of community of the common good whether they're left or right you know or or centrist or wherever or religious or not you know that that, there, there has to be something more like the parish like the family like these kind of forms of um social and communal bonds you know because it's 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 you know it's simply not true in a way to say that people are individuals and it's also brutalizing for people to think that they are or have to try and act like they are you know as if they're devoid of um you know commitments or ties um you know which are not not bad you know it's like sometimes you have to support other people sometimes they support you <laughs> you know that's what it means to live in in a communal or, or you know a sort of relational way in a in a way um a lot of this is just a down, downstream from technology um, in the sense that a, a lot of the technology, you know, post-enlightenment, essentially post-industrial revolution has been liberating in in the fact that we don't really need a lot of the ties that, that, that bound us in the past, you know, like in, maybe in, in John Stuart Mill's time, it wasn't actually very easy to, to you know, um, throw off the, the shackles of, uh, of uh, custom, of tradition, of family, of, of, you know, the unchosen bonds. But now it is, you know, you really do not, if, if you have at least, 
you don't even actually have to need to have skills. You can even just get a government check and then you'd be in relationship with, with the state and in your relationship with different vendors. And, and, you know, you might not have a very high standard of living, but you are essentially an independent unit. Uh, you don't need anyone except for the state and Amazon or whatever, you know, relationship you engage with. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious if we can have this, you know, if we can recapture this conviviality, if we can mm-hmm. recapture you know, a collective dimension without needing it, because I see a lot of people become very comfortable. I mean, myself included, it's actually a hard, it's a hard slog to recapture, you know, the a sense of community if it's not needed because the other people don't need it either. So it's kind of the, the default has moved from, I need you to, I can get whatever services or sociability you render from somewhere else, you know, like the internet or whatever vendors. Yeah, no, it's a really good question. I mean, I, I increasingly think the older I get that, you know, the only things that are worth doing are actually difficult, right? So I think, you know, this this image of 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 ease and 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 you know um convenience and all of those sorts of things, which I which I agree are massively amplified through various technological means and you know, the relation with the state, you know, does pose a particular well, does does constitute a particular kind of uh relation. I mean uh, obviously, I think the the state doesn't have anyone's best interest at heart. Like the state is not a a person. It's not it's not a relation, really, uh, in a way. And and you know we should be incredibly sort of suspicious of 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 the state um, in many ways. But I think, yeah, how, how to put it? Like there there is a kind of impoverishment of existence um, that is reducible to numbers and reducible to these sorts of. Um, like a quantitative way of living right and 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 obviously we live in the era of quantity we live with the regime of quantity uh as, as Gwenon might put it but it's like everything is measured you are a number you've got loads of numbers you you know you might get a check you have this amount of debt you know you're you you're this number of taxpayer or whatever um but this sort of tells you nothing about the quality of life like like the meaning of life uh, the poetry of life um you know, and as we head increasingly into into a world of kind of uh, vaccine passports and possible social credit systems, which are already here in in, in China, um, I think even in a sort of um, how to put it, like dying for no reason kind of way, they must be resisted. Like the homogenizing of existence and the sort of depoeticizing and the elimination of the qualitative dimension, even or especially when that's hard or unpleasant or upsetting or emotionally difficult. And this is another aspect. It's like the idea that if, if something is painful, you shouldn't do it, you know, that we should uh, avoid strong emotion at all costs. You know, we shouldn't fall in love with somebody. If you meet someone on an app, the idea that you might catch feelings is like the worst thing in the world. You know, I mean, the, this, this idea of like a, a totally um, safe, you know, risk-free life that nevertheless has all of the dimensions of pleasure and consuming, but without any of the risks or dangers, I think is um, untenable and kind of horrific. So I I would defend, um, I suppose, an, a life that is difficult and maybe difficult because you are dealing with people directly. Like, you know, if you're in a parish, you know, or with working with a group in your local community, you might not like, in fact, you probably won't like a lot of the people in the group or you won't have anything in common with them or other than the fact that you live in the same area. Um, but in a way, those ties, those chosen ties are more meaningful because they're real and because they're difficult, you know, when you have a shared aim or a shared goal, but not necessarily shared interests. Or Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. And I feel like um, there is 
kind of a move. People are starting to figure this out, but I feel like this is very class coded. So I feel like, you know, like in, in the upper strata, you know, upper middle class, upper strata, people are starting to um, kind of take back difficulty, take back pain. You see this in, you know, Spartan race, uh, you know, intermittent fasting. It's It has all sorts of names attached to it, but these are essentially kind of ascetic uh, practices and, and, you know, things, you know, 10-day meditation retreats, all, all yada, yada. Um, and I feel like, Kind of comfort has become a bit of an, an opiate for for the for the lower classes, and it's kind of left to it's kind of the the price the upper class pays for the peace that they enjoy from the lower class. It's kind of like the the bread and circus of of now. It's like you know appease them through the uh, soma that comes in through different for different versions. So um, yeah, I I don't know. I mean, there's also the the idea that you know elite theory that you know once it's it's taken up by the upper classes and it's going to trickle down as a, as a high status thing that, you know, everyone wants to do, but it is also oh, tricky. You know, not everyone can live that type of uh, restrictive life um, because it is, it is, it is hard, especially because almost every product around you is, is perfectly calibrated to be as addictive as possible because, you know, mm. it's, to transform you into the, the perfect consumer. So yeah. I don't no, it's a really good point. I mean, I think I think one thing about suffering is that, like, you know, everybody suffers. Like, that's the thing, rich and poor alike. And I, th- I think there's a kind of um, general and delusional attempt to pretend that that's not true, or even worse, actually, to politicise suffering and say that some people's suffering matters and other people's suffering doesn't. And I encountered this a lot when I was writing about men, you know, the idea that men's suffering doesn't matter somehow because they're men and therefore they're guilty and awful and you know like their pain doesn't count somehow um which is like a dreadful way of thinking as if there's only a sort of finite amount of pain to go around and we must give attention only to whichever group we've decided is suffering you know like so so i think suffering is inescapable um it's part of the human condition and we all suffer in different ways at different times um and part of understanding how we're related is also to understand the pain of others um and to help them when we can you know if we're able to um so but but i but i definitely agree that the that the there is a class coded nature to the question of comfort and and so on and and you're you're right that there's a, there are forms of uh you know i don't know posh asceticism you know that are that definitely kind of going on and and you know it's often like this kind of oscillation between sort of um, indulgence and uh you know self uh, purification or something like that like there's a lot of um this stuff going on um but but how to how to put it like um, i th- yeah I, th- I don't know where where to go with it but i, I think there is a somatic yes i mean you know there are many many things that are designed to basically keep people sort of content enough even at the cost of their own health or especially at the cost you know whether we're talking about the opioid um you know so-called crisis i mean this kind of murder of poor people um at the hands of drug companies or you know and um i think once you have an image of scarcity though like i think a lot of the very educated sort of middle class people like there's there's a there's a glut of people who've gone to university who aren't going to get the good jobs right so there's the whole idea of like luxury beliefs and how do you differentiate yourself um, from your cohort in the desperate competition for jobs. And, you know, if you can cancel someone, great, because then you might get that job and, you know, everything becomes this kind of zero sum game. Um, and I think that's that's one of the frameworks that has to be broken the most is the, is the fantasy that in any market there is a zero sum game you know, or even the fantasy of markets itself, like the idea of dating, like it's a zero sum game, the idea of men and women is a zero sum game, 
um, in favour of, um, you know, a much more sort of like expansive relation to the world. You know, the fact that actually like Bataille would say, like, the problem is not scarcity, the problem is excess. There's too much of everything, including existence. Like we're given this existence and it's sort of unbearable. And we sort of don't really know what to do with it in a way. Like it's kind of, uh, it's too much. We can never pay it back. You know, we can never repay the sun um, in a certain way. So, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not kind of particularly in favour of asceticism as such. Like I think that cannot just be a moralism precisely. Like it's like, oh, yes, well, I can afford to do this and eat this kind of food and you can't. Um, and this makes me a better person than you. Um, I mean, I think a lot of that stuff doesn't really matter. Like, it doesn't really matter what you like, you know, whether you're like a vegan or something or whatever, like it doesn't make much, much difference. <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah, I don't know. There's something else, but maybe more I'll of accessory. Yeah. Yeah. For, for yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you've, um, talked on on other podcasts before uh about like an, an an event in your life that's been quite pivotal you know you had you struggled with with alcohol addiction um and i wonder how that's impacted your view of philosophy because i think this the theme of, of freedom is is baked into that as well you know because that's it's in a way it's a it's an indulgence that turns into a, a monster of itself it's something that you think oh you know this is this is something that i do for myself but then it it comes back to bite you in, a, in, a, in an epic way so uh, I wonder how that's that's influenced your thinking um yeah for sure I mean I think addiction is a very interesting question philosophically and otherwise but um you know and, and in a way it partly comes back to how much we are able to automate ourselves you know like in a way we are in, in some ways uh it's not uninteresting to think of ourselves as a kind of machine in a way like it's how we get anything done like we can kind of program ourselves to use kind of computer language like if we want to do a task we can kind of set it up set it you know i mean in the and i think addiction is in a way like where automation runs amok like the <laughs> the thing is playing you um you know you stop being able to like be in control of it and you're being programmed by i don't know like a piece of rogue software or something i don't know why i'm using all these machining metaphors i actually hate them but um uh, but yeah, it, but but maybe that that indicates something of the kind of hellish nature of of of, of addiction. You know, it has this hell-like quality because precisely it's repetitive and machinic, um, and you kind of lose grip on your 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 ability to control it in a way, like whatever the the thing that's doing the controlling is. Um, I think you know things like wine and philosophy <laughs> they have a deep and intimate link right so there's also and if you're a writer as well it's very easy to kind of romanticize um these substances right like you know a lot of writers and poets and people i know have had very serious problems with addiction whether it's alcohol or, or other drugs or even smoking or you know like there there's a whole kind of way of seeing the world through these drugs that is deeply tied to a sort of poetic and romantic image or self-image um and i think you know i mean again this is not to to um shift responsibility but i think there are cultural conditions and circumstances that also encourage particular generations like so for example i mean like i'm gen x and i think we had a much more hedonistic relationship to to drink and drugs like it was much 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 more part of our culture from a very very young age um in in the 90s and you know it was and especially for women there was a kind of thing about how 
uh, like the ladette. So the ladette was uh, the woman who could like drink as much as the men. And it was kind of cool. You know, it was like an updating of the tomboy thing. And, you know, I think a lot of people, myself included, were very seduced by that because it was like, this is like an e equality of the worst. You know, it's like, finally, we get to behave as badly as men or something like this. And this is like a, a necessary stage in the sort of dialectical history of like men and women. <laughs> I mean, of course, it's completely delusional. I mean, it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's also like a marketing thing as well. And, you know, I think everybody falls prey to something or other. And um, but yeah, I, th I think having had that sort of experience and and getting really really quite ill and it was I was also like dealing with lots of traumatic things that were happening and um you know I was trying to help someone who'd like almost been killed by the police and then was on trial for years on end and it was a very very horrible horrible period and like this kind of nascent drinking problem just kind of like got really out of hand um you know and, and it's always like you you can only see it how bad it's got sort of almost too almost too late and and for some people it's it, it is too late like sometimes people don't come back from it and you know I do I think about that a lot and I think particularly in my generation like a lot of people didn't come back from it <laughs> you know um from one addiction or another um so I think it, it's a very interesting topic for for thought like I haven't written that much about addiction but I think you know there are people working on it and it's you know, also in relation to this question of morality, you know, it's like, how far do we blame individual people for things like addiction? You know, it's a very complicated question. And I'm not sure that it's resolved. Like I never have quite the, I don't know, the final answer to what it is, you know, is it kind of a moral failing? Is it like a physiological predisposition is it like a matter of circumstance is it you know I mean obviously like lots of Irish people people of Irish background have have drinking problems and there are lots of theories about that um but but in a way that's also an excuse right like it's just because you you're Irish it doesn't mean that you have to develop a drinking problem you know so yeah yeah, no, no, I, I, I see it. I mean, I'm Romanians also have kind of a similar reputation, maybe locally. I don't know if anyone in the UK associates mm -hmm. specifically with alcohol, but they do probably with other things. Um, but um, yeah, I think I think you you make you kind of uncover an interesting direction to this. You know, like how much responsibility does the individual have? Because kind of like the the dark side of liberalism is you know infinite choice it's infinite responsibility as well, which is something that people try to downplay because, you know, I think a lot of the, the negativity that we have in, in public discourse is that we're burying, we're constantly burying, we're constantly putting under the rug the responsibility, you know, the the flip side of the coin of, of freedom, of this, you know, un unfettered choice type freedom that we're all enjoying. Uh, and then we're also, we're in that meme with Spider-Man where we're just pointing fingers at each other, like who's actually going to be holding the bag with the, with this, you know, with the downside of responsibility. So for women, like I feel like a lot of modern feminism, you know, the, the consumer feminism is essentially women chafing uh, at their role in this mechanized society uh, and then trying to figure out, okay, why is this, why does this feel bad? Why this is, why, why is this not good? And a lot of it is essentially them, you know, wrestling with nature, but there is no explanation, you know, their, their uh, worldview does not accept nature. It's all about the individual and choice and all this type of stuff. So it's men because they're the, they're the antagonists in this perpetual Tom and Jerry <laughs> tomfoolery. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, I am, I'm curious what, what you think about that, that, you know, it's, um, um, there, there's the dark side, there's responsibility in all of this and, and we're, um, yeah, we're, we're very bad at noticing it. 
no, totally. I mean, I completely agree. I think that's a brilliant question. And I think a lot of it, you know, so so in the book, I have this word like puritanical, which is a combination of prurient and puritanical. So to describe this culture that on the one hand encourages excess and, you know, says you should be sexy and sexual and, you know, uh, in, in, explore all your desires. But on the other hand, if you get it wrong, then you're like you're like moral enemy, you know. So like the the, the flip side of a culture that that encourages this sort of you know hedonistic behaviour, but at the same time has often incomprehensible rules about if someone goes wrong, you know. And we're not even talking about legal wrongs, you know. Maybe there's a lot of inter interpersonal stuff that is sort of in a grey area, but you know then. The question of blame it's like oh well this person is to blame this person is the terrible person that you know suddenly someone becomes like uh you know figured in this way and it, and it is i think partly to do with this um you know actually failure to deal with as you say the flip side of of freedom which is responsibility so nobody wants to take responsibility when something goes wrong and at the same time you know despite kind of wittering about patriarchy actually we don't have a great deal of like patriarchs in the sense or patriarchal culture in the sense of you know men taking responsibility right patriarchy is not just stealing things from women or whatever it's and in fact it's not that at all it's like the patriarchs are basically the men who are responsible for others like in the bible for example they're the men who have huge families and and so on and and in a way like the there is a kind of death of the father in the sense that nobody wants to be the adult in the room <laughs> like nobody wants to say hang on, you shouldn't do that. It's not good for you. Because it's kind of boring. It's like being the party people. Like to be the adult, you have to say, no, there are limits. You know, I'm doing this to protect you. You know, so now you have situations where people are saying, well, my child knows best. And you're like, no, no, they don't. <laughs> like, no, no, you know better. <laughs> like you really should know better. Um, you know, and so I think that, you know, and you can think about this in relation to boomers. The Helen Andrews book um, is very good on this point. Like, and, and, you know, we, Michelle Welbeck and, you know, the, the kind of uh, hollowing out of that kind of adultness that would in, that would involve responsibility, that would involve like the father, for example, taking on the role of of being responsible for women and children. You know, the the perhaps historically necessary eradication or erosion of that role has ended up in a situation where everyone is like brother and sister. Like, and this is the thesis of this book called Society Without the Father by Mitte Schleck, who's a very interesting um, sort of psychologist. You know, so that basically what you have is sibling rivalry. There are no adults and children. They're just like brothers and sisters, basically. So men and women are kind of competing with each other rather than in engaging in to sort of different but equal forms of like mutual support and relation on the basis of their differential capacities and qualities. You know, and sexual difference, of course, poses that question you know it's like saying men and women are different like and they're you know their difference is what's necessary you know and when women sort of are encouraged to behave more like men like in the Ladette example I mean that's a kind of silly example in a way but it is part of this is also to like potentially deny their own nature you know and that this is somehow this never works out well <laughs> for women I think it's always recuperated back into like what's better for capitalism or whatever, you know? So it's better for capital that women work as well because then they don't have to pay a family wage and they can pay everyone less. And, you know, this isn't feminism's fault, but it's a kind of incidental, like, cost of that position. It also feels to me that a lot of times kind of feminism becomes 
a theory that is a descriptor of a certain moment that was brought about by technology rather than, you know, because a lot of people think, okay, the, the suffragettes, you know, kicked off a movement that through its, you know, theoreticians has, you know, seeded this this idea that women, you know, and then kind of like all the dominoes fell afterwards. But I feel like, you know, I feel maybe techno technology, techno capital was, was, you know, one step ahead before the theoreticians and already kind of laying the groundwork of, of what this looks like. And then, you know, they were observing and, and, and describing what was already happening. Um, because, you know, it, this, this essentially wouldn't work without the, this relationship of, you know, the liberal liberated woman would not work in, in a vacuum. This is only is completely contingent on, on how technology relates to, to women. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, including the vacuum cleaner, I'm reminded associatively by <laughs> by your use of the word vacuum. Um, no, no, I, I I agree, and it's so the question of how constructed those different positions are by the technologies is is a crucial one. But this is why I think this kind of pendulum swing that maybe we're seeing, you know, back towards a defence of sexual difference. And you know, when we're talking about human nature, I mean, it's also in our nature to use tools, right? So we're the, we're a technological species. So it's not like the technology is sort of somehow not us. It is us. It's us as well. It's everything that we collectively have um, come up with. Uh, whether we should have done or not is another question, but morality always lags behind technology as well. It's like, well, if you can do it, why not? You know, that's the kind of, that's the the morality of technology. Um, you know, and, and of course we can talk about the specific uh, kinds of uh, women that something like the contraceptive pill has created, you know, Women are also then the product of these chemical interventions, like in very serious ways. You know, it, we know that it changes the kind of men that women fan fancy, and you know, obviously, it it changes how uh, women are oriented towards the workforce and so on. And I, I can absolutely imagine a, a very large scale, widespread backlash against the sexual liberalism or sexual liberation of the mid 20th century and the technology that accompanied it I can I can I sort of feel like this is is coming <laughs> um and I do wonder about like zoomers I think that maybe they they will rebel against the internet I think for those people who've had their whole life on the internet so far including lockdown including school including you know it will become associated with everything that sucks you know, and that there will be kind of a breakout towards nature, like a, everyone will start getting obsessed with the Unabomber manifesto again, hopefully not doing what he did in terms of sending bombs, but, you know, like turning against industrial society and, and towards back to nature and to the wild and, and to their own nature as well, you know, without big pharma, without intervention, without these sorts of things. Yeah, I, I feel like, you know, in, in my echo chambers, these are already big themes, you know, the people, you know, people, everyone reads Uncle Ted, <laughs> with, you know, tongue in cheek, but they still, you know, the, the, the manifesto itself is not necessarily a, a bad piece of uh, thinking, um, you know, the implementation, like we said, not, not the best, but um, uh, it's it's coming. And, you know, the sex negativity as well, like uh, Default Friend also talks about this a lot. Uh, and she's kind of this, this cartographer of, of what's been going on on the internet and what's going on now. Uh, she's also on TikTok, some, a step that I've yet to take and I might not at all. I definitely feel too old for, for TikTok. I can't even watch them. It's interesting how one phases out of technologies as well. Like, the, you know, that there are ones that are sort of your age and the ones that are not. Like, I'm definitely blog you know, old school blogs, 
and Facebook and now Substack, but I can't, I can't use in Instagram or TikTok, anything that's so visual. And I, I find it just like demonic, like it's too much, there's too many images and too, it's too fast. And it's like, I don't know. <laughs> no, absolutely, absolutely true. But you know what they're doing now? They're putting TikTok in everything. So YouTube has a TikTok, it's called YouTube Shorts. Uh, and then Instagram has a TikTok, it's called Instagram Reels. And it's all just, you know, they're, they're shooting the form, like if one format takes off on one platform, you can be certain, you know, that it comes onto another one, like, like Twitter mm-hmm. spaces, you know, that's Clubhouse. So they all kind of converge into one, you know, demonic vortex of (laughs) (laughs) so you you cannot escape whatever you're on so even even on facebook i'm sure i'm sure there's some tiktok on facebook if you look very closely yeah hopefully it's just like old people moaning about their lunch or something but um yeah i I don't know the sex negativity point though no and i like default friend stuff a lot and i think yeah i mean it's it's again it's very i think that there may be you know the pendulum swinging against the sexual revolution sexual liberation it's like well one of the things that is a positive consequence of that is actually restoring like the meaning and the poetry of sex for example like having sex with someone you actually love and care about and you know feel this deep sense of connection and intimacy with and let's say you know and I think this idea that probably you should only have sex with people who if if a pregnancy happened you would be able to deal with it with this person right because I mean you know, without being reductive, like that is what sex is, is sort of for, as it were, like, you know, this is <laughs> the natural consequence of sex. If, you know, if a woman is fertile and she has sex, you know, it's it's a possibility. And so, so I think if, you know, and it's not to say that that's all sex is, obviously Freud points out that most sexual interaction is perverse in a strict sense in that it doesn't contribute to reproduction, like a kiss is perverse, right? A kiss is not in itself um, part of the reproductive act. Um, but but the idea that you, I don't know, that, that that to be sexually liberated or to be a modern person, you have to have random sex with hundreds of people. It's just like, I think it's very bad for people. Like, I think it's like, you know, very upsetting, actually. And I think the, the idea that like a woman wouldn't mind if a man said, I don't really care about you. I don't think it's true. And I think there are differential costs for men and women you know, biologically and psychically. And I don't think it's reactionary to say that. I think it's just true. And, you know, the truth might be reactionary. <laughs> but that, but so be it, you know, I'm interested in the truth. I'm not interested in, like, making people feel better. Um, I think sometimes, you know, cultures do go down terrible paths and, and we should be able to discuss that and and openly and honestly. And, yeah, so I think but one of the things that might come back is, is that, like, sort of... Um, fewer but better sexual encounters you know that people will only have sex with with people that they they really genuinely feel close to and and you know where pregnancy might be you know part of it maybe and maybe that means people marrying earlier or you know getting married which they're not really doing very much um or they're marrying very late um and I think that can only be good I think that will only increase love and intimacy you know I I don't if I don't think it's Again, I don't think it's reactionary to to say that. You know, I think the sexual revolution, as many feminists point out, was was a, a net negative for women. Yeah, yeah, and children. Absolutely, and children. That's that's a that's a good point. Um, I mean, I think you know, women and children are kind of a. a of a dimension that has been 
uh, taken apart by, you know, by the idea of individualism. You know, there, there's a woman and there's a child and there are different entities and they're, um, you know, they, they might coexist for a short while, but then the child goes off to daycare and, you know, flows into the, the state consumer apparatus and becomes a, its own homunculus driving the meat suit. So, <laughs> you know, being, making choices intensely every day. Um, but... I think that's that's probably the the most alienating, at least at least to me, because I'm I just I just had a baby, and you know this this conception of me as an individual now is just completely mm-hmm. absurd to me. I'm you know for I mean I do these podcasts is probably the the longest I'm going to be away from the baby for you know for weeks. So it's you know we are we are one, and we've been one for a while, and you know there's the fourth trimester, and there's a, the first year, and you know there's there's a it's it's a completely different state of existence to be a mother and this is this is part of the the female experience but it's it's something that's very hidden you know to me i didn't really know i wasn't prepared for this there was no lore that explains it to me even from my family it's like oh you know how's the birth oh it's easy it's hard you know this hurts this doesn't hurt but there's not really a kind of like a spiritual preparation of you know what what is it gonna feel like it's all very surprising it's it's amazing it's wonderful i would counsel everyone have as many children as you can uh but at the same time i wouldn't have been able to simulate how this would be so if i was in a position to make a rational choice about this i wouldn't have you know perfect information i wouldn't be the the rational the the best rational chooser for this so yeah no exactly and and so so for a liberalism that takes as its fundamental unit the individual i mean like motherhood makes no sense right like you know the relationship between mother and child is just simply not visible from that point of view which is why a politics of liberalism i think is doomed to fail right for this reason amongst many others like you know because it's just not it's just not true <laughs> you know and and yeah and i and i i do think you know one of the really complicated and like kind of awful things that's happening at the moment is a kind of unacknowledged hatred of the mother like the figure of the mother which is often exhibited in the attacks on so-called turfs and the attacks on women who want to defend like women-only spaces or the use of the word woman or you know to defend like for, for example the protective aspects of parenthood you know the idea that parents actually do know better than their children what is best for their child you know which again is being eroded by the state and also by like various cult-like ideas you know the ideas that children somehow know better is you know which, which of course isn't true and and I think there's this kind of like it needs careful psychoanalytic investigation like what on earth is going on with this kind of hatred of like older women you know women who, like let's say especially women who are no longer like in the sexual economy you know either they're mothers or they they've aged out of the you know attractable attractive age range or whatever um you know the the kind of um vehemence and anger that is permitted culturally to be directed towards women is like is horrendous you know, and it and it it's 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 just like absolutely mental. And you think like, what the fuck is going on? I mean, do all these people like hate being alive so much that they want to like take it out on like you know mother figures? Um, you know, not. I feel like th- this has something to do with our perspective of other people being kind of catalysts to our own experience rather than, you know, moral agents in themselves. Because you know, a young woman is a potential catalyst to your experience. She's either a, a worthy competitor if you're a woman and, you know, she's a certain, she's a, she's an eight, you're a nine, she's a seven, you're a six, whatever, things like that. <laughs> the stupidities of, of female intrasexual competition. Or as a man, she's, you know, a potential 
sexual interest. But once she's not, she's kind of aged out out of being um, a potential experience for you, then, you know, she's just dead weight. She's not, you know, absolutely irrelevant or a nag or, you know, then she can kind of fall into kind of the, the shadow of a female existence and say, okay, yeah, she's, she's a Karen. She's nagging. She's, she has too many needs too too little input into, into the world. Yeah, definitely. And I, and, you know, and then sort of even worse than that, I suppose, is the idea that women are stealing your enjoyment. Like, so like older women, like they shouldn't even exist. Like, what are they even doing here? Like, you know, my sexual world is like, you know, doesn't have room for these women and, you know, and then they can be the repository of like anger and hatred. And, you know, I think especially like the, it's, you know, it's weird. Like they used to be this kind of cliched image of the feminist as being this kind of, I don't know, like, I don't know, like, uh, sort of dikey and attractive, uh, you know, yeah, sort of like annoying, humorless, um, which weirdly has become like how mainstream so-called feminists behave. <laughs> like they they really do hate men, right? I think this, the, the, the sort of stereotype of the second wave feminist as a man-hater wasn't true, but now paradoxically it sort of has become true. Like you're allowed to hate men if you're a mainstream feminist and men are toxic and evil. And, but but then like, I don't know how to put it. It's like the, any woman who says like, no, we shouldn't have men who think they're women in changing rooms or like, you know, we should look after children and protect them from predators. And we, we have a right to care about this and we have a right to the word woman or mother, um, you know, and they mean something specific. Um, you know, it's, it's almost like they're stealing other people's enjoyment, you know, and therefore like they, they are the legitimate targets for anger and hatred, you know, like you're allowed to threaten them, you're allowed to threaten them with rape and violence and, you know, all of these things, um, because they've been, they've been designated witches or like turfs or fascists or whatever, like, therefore you can hate them. It feels like, um, especially now with, with the, the, the trans movement is kind of the, the avant-garde of this, of liberalism. You know, they are, they're the ultimate liberated individual. So they kind of need extra special protection from people who might, you know, in, infringe on their, on their liberty to, I'm not exactly sure what, what, to do whatever. I think there was like a, a family guy sketch where this uh, trans lady was, uh, was watching porn at a bar and the, the, the bartender said, oh, no, no porn watching at, at this bar. And he said, oh, I'm trans. Okay, then do whatever the hell you want. <laughs> so I think that's... Yeah, and I, I think it's always really dangerous if you have any group that are trying to say that we're special and we're not kind of um, prey to the same, like, you know, moral criteria or interpersonal behavior or whatever as anyone else. You know, it's like you no group can exempt themselves from this. It's very dangerous if you do that, um, especially if that group is also saying, oh, well, we decide who we're allowed to hate and we can do what we like to another group that we decided to hate. Like this is, this is, you know, this is fascism. Um, you know, and it's, it, of course, it's like one of the ironies of history that like, it, you know, now to call someone a fascist is like one of the worst things you can call them. Like if you're a leftist to call someone a fascist is like, you know, it's the awful word or, you know, a neo-Nazi, uh, you know, and none of these people have any neo-Nazi or fascist views as historically would make sense, you know, that, that, that bear any relation to, to historical views, but it, it doesn't matter. It's, it's just because that word is the worst thing, you know, and once you've called someone it, then they're fair game. Um, and it's also just easy. I think there's so much lazy thinking, like I really object to like the laziness of contemporary thoughts, where it's like, oh, we don't have to read the canon because they're all like dead white men and they've got nothing to teach us. Like, that's just lazy. That's just like you not wanting to do your homework. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that that's probably part of it. And it's it's also it's also easy and you know it's it's the path of least resistance uh because if you're kind of in an academic context and you say, Oh, I'm sorry, this is a dead white man, I'm you know. 
I, I excuse myself from, from doing this type of work. Um, it's, it's just that you were not going to get pushback. You probably, you know, people are pretty floppy on, on this front. They, they're too afraid to, um, yeah, to, to push back. And then that kind of encourages a, a, a laziness and, and stupidity in general. Like you can see stupidity blooming in, in so many areas now and uh, lack of responsibility as well. Like, you know, very few people still know how to build a bridge. Very few people still know how to, you know, do things in real life, but even maintain things that have, I've been built 50 years ago. There are very few of those people left. So um, I'm curious if you think that there is a looming, just practical collapse of, of, of the world as it is. Because, you know, as I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that there are certain aspects of reality that are undeniable. One of them is that, you know, there are men, there are women, they're different. Uh, we need to we need to deal with that on, on every level. Um, and, you know, there, there are all sorts of differences in, in the world and we don't seem to be able to um, to deal with that. And that has consequences in reality and reality will snap back. There is a there's a certain, you know, elastic band of reality that comes comes back. So do you think that there is something like that? looming will there be a a change yeah for sure i mean i think socially there's a limit to how far groups can um function using fear and bullying like i think uh, even if people are afraid for a while or go along with something because they don't want the social consequences if they stand up i think when at a certain point and i always think it's coming but (laughs) maybe there will be a tipping point at which people say like no more like we're not going to be bullied by you like it doesn't matter like try and you know you can threaten me you can threaten my job you can you know whatever but we're not gonna take it anymore and like you know and and that's one that's a form of social pushback in the name of reality you could say but I think the bigger question is like you know maybe to do with nature capital n or what what happens when and not just this question of like the meat suits and you know supposed infinite malleability but also you know perhaps like a kind of ecological question which is which is also very complicated because obviously there's like a ruling class version of this which is like the wf thing about like you will own nothing and you will be happy and like you can Im- totally imagine a kind of form of elite dispossession in which they take everything away from the, the you know the neo-feudal <laughs> serfs um, and they keep it all and they rent it to you or whatever or they they withhold it on the basis of your bad credit score because you wrote a bad tweet or something um and so there is dispossession from above, which I think we're looking at. And, and I can also imagine like uh, lockdowns being invoked in the name of the environment, right? Like I definitely think this is a possibility because now they know they can do it. They can say, oh, well, like, um, you know, there's too much pollution this month. You know, no one's allowed to fly, no one's allowed to travel, whatever. Like they can invoke the environment. Um, and it's not really the environment. It's, and so I think there might need to be like a concept of nature or something like deeper that is um, not, I don't know how to put it, like can't be used or utilised by the elites in the name of like crushing or creating a neo-feudal underclass. Um, And in that sense, we have to be on the side of nature and our own nature, like against those people who would use it rhetorically, but not, they wouldn't really be defending nature, capital N. Yeah, yeah. I think... um... In a in a way that that dimension of nature is almost interchangeable with reality because you know there's a lot of a lot of aspects you know even even of ecology that you know the the ruling class doesn't ignore they're they're not that crazy about nuclear you know there's a lot of you know shortcuts that they're they're um, they're ignoring given that uh, you know they're 
your ostensible goals are to reduce carbon emissions and things like that. So um, I think there is there is a not a, like you said not a right wing but just a, a right concept of, of of nature that's being recaptured now. And there's um, I mean there's there's a lot of uh, talk in in this direction. I mean uh, from people who are localists to people who are you know system thinkers um and i think i think something's coming as well like you know like the sex negativity um kind of it's not you know eco-fascism some of some of these people call themselves eco-fascists but i think it's more tongue-in-cheek it's the idea that you know it's 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 an unwoke view of of conserve conservation of our relationship yeah. with nature um and it's it's definitely necessary well the moment you talk about nature you get called an eco-fascist like i got called an eco-fascist because i was like saying that we need to re-enchant nature and defend heritage and protect the, you know like it's more like a conservationist or preservationist position but that yeah but you you get called an eco-fascist for saying that basically so i can see why people would like take it on as a mantle (laughs) because it it takes nothing to be called that yeah i think uh, people do tend to attach fascists to all sorts of things (laughs) yeah to to my name sometimes as well yeah and i I guess you're you're also not spared of of this i mean like like you said you know there there has to be a point where um all of these um all these words kind of lose their meaning at least to me they they've lost it i haven't really had you know the 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 professional consequences that that you've you know, had to, had to suffer. Um, you know, I've, I've had attacks from all sorts of directions, but nothing really came of it. But it's also that, um, I feel like I've, I've positioned myself, you know, I've, I've said that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm right wing, I'm the devil, I'm square in the (laughs) middle of, of, of the, all the things that are bad, um, you know, come at me. But the thing is that between me and you, there's, you know, there's seven layers of people that are closer to you. So you probably want to, you know, clean, clean your fringes before, before you get to me. And I think that's why a lot of people don't really mind me. Cause I'm like, yeah, she's so beyond the pale that no one really cares uh, what, what, what's going on with her. And yet here you are being eminently reasonable. <laughs> well, that's yeah. what you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, I think, I think probably part of what happened to me was like in-group scapegoating and like, you know, if you're a heretic, it's much worse, you know? So it's like, if people think that you're like with them and then you appear to, be betraying them uh even though I don't feel like that I feel like I've had the same politics since I was like in my teen you know 17 or 18 um but the culture went mental <laughs> and I, it took me ages to work out what was going on and I was a bit slow like I didn't realize like what was going on with like scapegoat mechanisms and and stuff on the left and because I was tied up with the court cases and everything and and by the time I realized I was like oh shit this is this is terrible <laughs> this is really bad and like I want to like you know point this out and then you know suffer the consequences because I couldn't kind of live with myself anymore like I could see you know people just being kind of punished and attacked online and it's like the moment you point out the mechanism uh then it comes for you like you know if you say to like oh you're you're burning women (laughs) and they're like right we're gonna burn you you know so you you know once you once you point at the witch hunters uh and you 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 sort of um in a way you're trying to stop that you're you're trying to de-escalate the, the enjoyment the sadistic enjoyment that they're taking which they can't admit to themselves either because they think they're doing the right thing but the moment you put a, a like a you know a sort of spanner in the works of their enjoyment then they'll they'll come for you so I kind of knew it would happen but I didn't know how bad it was would be and and you know like uh yeah I mean people just go crazy they think they can defame you and say whatever they like about you like and they just make stuff up and they think it's fine because 
Like if you're the enemy, it's like you can, you know, they can say anything. That's that's how people think. Like it's very Schmittian. Yeah, and, and I think it, they're also bolstered by the fact that you know power rewards this type of scapegoating at the moment. Um, you know, there's there's no at least there's no consequences for them libeling or um, I guess in, in your case, you know, they might well, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but in, in most cases, and in most cases where people are defamed or attacked, um, you know, there's no not really any downside. And there's quite a lot of upside in group cohesion, in mining clout within your own group and showing that you're a true believer in, you know, gaining status. Uh, so I, I can understand why people do this. Um, but at the same time, like you said, you you know, you're, it's, it's, you know, once you see the mechanism, there's no going back. Um, I wonder, do you think that at this point you've been through, through a lot with, with, uh, with the court case and, you know, going through, through all of this, um, do you feel like you're, you're past the point of caring? Is there, is there a limit to, to what you say in public now? Um, is there a, uh, something you say on main, something you say in private? Um, no, I mean, I, th I think, well, one of the interesting, like, uh, you know, positive outcomes of like being cancelled is that you're not necessarily worried about being cancelled again. I mean, people will continue to cancel you, like you never stop being cancelled, right? Like you get obsessive nut, nut cases who are like on it and they they listen to everything. Like someone will watch this and they'll take down a line and they'll take it up, you know, and they'll say this proves once again that Nina is a terrible transphobic fascist, you know. And so like every, you, you have those people and they they sort of, that you have to say that they enjoy it, right? They they obviously get something out of it, you know. Um, but I think the 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 crucial question for me is like, you know, what does it mean to live in a world where people think that they can lie about you and accuse you of crimes, for example, that you haven't committed, um, and think that that's an acceptable way of behaving? Like, I think that there are limits, right? Like, this is not this is not critique this is not disagreeing with someone this is trying to defame someone so that they don't uh, speak again in public or that they are their reputation is damaged to such an extent that other people won't listen to them right that's what defamation is you know and and people accuse me of being insane they accuse me of you know holding political beliefs i don't hold you know they just kind of endlessly repeat these sorts of things and it's you know they're doing so not only to to stop you know or, or, or attempt to stop people listening to me but also as a warning to other people right the whole point is like if you speak out or if you say anything like nina says you will be next you know and that's uh very very powerful you know most people like i have relative freedom and stability in my life but other people have less of that right like i left all my jobs before people went for them Right. They still go for, for things if people, you know, invited talks and, you know, they write to publishers. But now I tend to work on my own or with people I know who will not be, um, you know, prey to that kind of anonymous or, or emails. You know, they wouldn't, you know, they know what the situation is and they want to work with me. So but but other people don't have that um, choice or that that position you know other people have families they have people who rely on them it's very hard for some people to speak out they don't want to lose their job you know I mean people are losing their jobs over not having a vaccination at the moment you know like there are also other things going on you know but it's so I think there is a freedom that comes from being cancelled if you can take it if you can cope with it but I can also see and I would never judge people in a way for not speaking out although I do think that some people should be like I think a lot of academics have been absolutely pathetic when it comes to defending academic freedom and 
very few of them, some of them have, but very few of them have like defended rights of colleagues to talk about supposedly controversial matters, particularly the men. <laughs> it, it, it does seem to be kind of an extension of what we were talking about before, about, you know, the, the, the comfortable, you know, liberal status that we're in, um, where, you know, you want to avoid discomfort at, at all costs. I mean, I, I wonder if, you know, if, if, this, if these generations could even fight a war anymore, or if there, if there was any way of you know, presenting them with a with a worldview that is not maybe not necessarily wokeness, though that's probably the most virulent, the most the, the strongest belief that people hold at the moment. Um, and you know, is there anything people would go to war for? You know, because their families probably not. Um, you know, some people. Oh, but I don't know. I, I'm sure, like most people, would defend their families. Surely. <laughs> Probably, probably. I mean, you're, you're like immediate family, but in like, for example, you know, the, the idea of, of clan or, or tribe or extended family, you know, the um, um, kind of the, the people, your people uh, is, is probably not, not as, as trendy anymore. I definitely would go to war for my child, but, um, you know, the idea that, you know, there, there are cousins that I'm very, you know, I pledge allegiance to. Sorry, sorry, cousins, if you're listening, probably won't. Uh, it's 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 harder because you know there's just quite just just a much more distance between people you know that are yeah not in your house. No, sure. I, I mean, I, I do I do like, take what you're saying completely, and um, you know, it's it reminded me when you're thinking about like how the sort of degradation of things like friendship and loyalty as well. You know, like I think on the on the left, friendship is generally regarded as strategic alliance. You know, it's like you're friends with someone insofar as you agree with them. Um, and any concept of loyalty is sort of um, eroded by that, actually. You know, if politics comes to be the sole measure of how you understand another person, then, of course, you're going to, like, not be friends with someone if they disagree with you on a major political issue or even a minor one. Whereas I think questions of, of loyalty, you know, like, in a way need to be encouraged or, like, brought back in a much greater way because, you know, loyalty is also being friends with someone while they're when they're having a bad time you know friendship is not just about like hanging out with someone when they're cool and popular and like everyone loves them it's also like sticking by somebody when they their life is going to shit you know or they're being accused of something or they're going to prison or whatever you know and people seem to forget that that's also what friendship means yeah. you know and it's like it's too easy to like ghost people or drop them or like pretend they don't exist anymore. And, you know, and then you end up living in a world in which like everyone who's still alive is still alive. Um, but it's really uncomfortable because like, you know, when you, when you see people that you, you know, have slagged you off and have written horrible things about you and they're like, <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, hi. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, like, like I said, you know, the people are, are, related to 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 other people just just as as far as their own experience extends you know if if you were contributing to a positive experience if you're an ally then then you can stay if you disappoint or you know give me bad vibes and then you go it's uh yeah it's it's yeah there's there's definitely not a I, I think it's kind of like the motherhood thing you know like i feel like the the the, the long the long game of friendship People are missing out on that and the long game of family and the long game of motherhood, because these are all experiences that you can't simulate until you're at that point, until you've, you've put in the miles, until you're, you're with someone for a long time and you understand. Uh, but I feel like people have, have either, you know, have been robbed or have robbed themselves of, of these types of experiences because everything's just focused on, on what's most expedient and what's most, you know, what's going to tickle your limbic system today um and uh it's 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 quite a, a bleak existence like you said it's bare life 
Yeah, no, no. I mean, I agree. Now, it's like your description. It makes you know quite rightly. It makes everyone sound like a sort of sociopathic radio. You know, like they're just like you know, but like, <laughs> but exactly like the long term commitment. You know, like the the thing about anything like worthwhile is difficult. Like if you're with someone for a long time, and if you have children with them, you know, this is like a real thing. And it and sometimes it's really difficult. Sometimes it's awful. Sometimes you have to work through like some you know, like terrible things and, you know, but it's, but it's worth it precisely for that reason. Like the commitment itself, like is a third aspect to the relationship. It's like people are also committed not to each other, but to the, to the contract, you know, whether you're married or not, like the, that that's the point of having like a, a, a symbolic, you know, third, you know, it's, it's like, it's not only the commitment to each other, it's a commitment to the contract. You know, which is why marriage was the solution to the problem of men and women, <laughs> you know, and yeah. And like in a consumerist liberated society, like marriage is like very uh, uncool. And like, you know, why would you why would you hook yourself to one person when you could have sex with lots of other random people you haven't even met yet and don't care about, you know, like, um you know, and it's interesting. And I look at my, you know, my parents just celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary, which is amazing, right? Like they got married at 23. Like that was totally normal. You know, they had kids in their late twenties. Uh, you know, it's like, that was what their generation did. But of course, like, um, among their friends, you know, many, a lot of them have been divorced and married several times and, you know, it's without judgment. Right. But it's very interesting to look at how my parents managed in a way to stay together for 50 years, you know, and they have a very, very loving and, and, thoughtful relationship with one another and in it and it's partly I think because they regard it as a sort of a shared practical project right they love each other very much very romantic but it's fundamentally about what they do together and and it's it's a kind of you know they regard it in some ways lightheartedly as a kind of uh you know a, a work you know a labor you know to be married to someone and to to spend time with them and to be with them and to 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 maintain the relationship you know um and it's and it's extraordinary you know what does it mean to be with someone for 50 years like what a thing <laughs> exactly and I, I think you hit the nail on the head there and that there's a, a symbolic dimension that's kind of fallen away and that you need that that third element where you know both people are committed to an external ideal of of what the, the the relationship should be rather than to each other because when you're committed to each other you're essentially in a tit for tat game you know even if you're if you're more resilient and accept you know five five tits to your one tat or things like that you know whatever whatever combination of of uh, of game you want to play there's going to be a point where the other one other person you know just disappoints you and then you're not getting the experience that you wanted out of that relationship and then obviously you're you know you're in your right to divorce or to to you know take up another relationship where you're going to get more out of the relationship for yourself obviously so it's um yeah it's it's um it's a zero-sum game viewed viewed without that metaphysical layer to it exactly and I think it's all too easy you know and everybody's prey to this you know so again I'm not speaking from some like position of like knowing how to do this properly but like you know, otherwise you end up in that kind of, yeah, collecting grudges or like, but you said this and you said that. And, you know, like, you know, I've seen people do this a lot where it's like they never forget, you know, and you have to forget. Basically, you have to drop certain things. You can't if if someone says something that's upsetting in a relationship or someone does something that's a little bit thoughtless, you know, and then you forgive them for it. You can't then keep bringing it back up. You know, it's like it's like Nietzsche's necessary forgetting, like for relationships. I should write a Nietzschean dating guide, but like it's literally like you you can't keep doing that because what you're doing is also then forgetting the forgiveness. 
you know, you're forgetting that you've actually agreed to to get over it and you accepted the other person's apology. So you can't keep returning to the harm without then doing damage to the relationship as such. And and indeed, like acting like it's a zero sum game. You know, I mean, it doesn't mean that some harms aren't really bad. Like if someone has an affair, right, They or whatever, like, or does something, you know, that goes very much against the the, the promise or the, the contract or whatever, the agreement, um, then, of course, that that's worthy of attention. But, you know, when it comes to these, like, little things, like these, mi- you know, little microtransgressions, to use sort of silly leftist language, but, you know, where someone has just done something a bit stupid or, like, you know... It, you have to you have to be kind you have to be you know generous <laughs> and it's there's also kind of a a weird um kind of bias that that people have you know there's always you kind of see the you know the the transgressions of the other person much more clearly than you see your own so at least what I have kind of as a heuristic in my relationship with my husband is that I always kind of want to be at least a few steps ahead of him in terms of how much I put into the relationship because I know even then I'll probably fall short just because I just don't notice how much he does for me um I I do notice but it's just you know for me it's like I I keep my tally a little bit more updated than his because it's just I'm the one doing that stuff so I'm trying to because I, I just know that you know it's uh it's it's a hard thing to perceive and you all if, if you don't do this type of stuff then you do kind of build up a little bit of resentment like oh I've, I've done I've done this he hasn't done that and yeah it's just a just just not a way of to, not a good way to think about it no exactly and I think you know when you had cultures that had forgiveness kind of built into a religious structure for example or atonement you know there were there were kind of more um yeah I mean these are kind of social technologies like you know that 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 permit the um both the understanding that uh, everyone is capable of harm and everyone has harmed you know everyone has sinned everyone has transgressed um but that also everyone is capable of like forgiving you know everyone c- can potentially like move on you know like th- those are social technologies that are very useful and they seem to have been like eroded you know so you end up in situations where it's like no, this person is an abuser or this person has done something wrong and they must never be allowed to forget it ever, 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 you know, because they're kind of indelibly marked, which is not very Christian at all, obviously. Uh, you know, it's pure moralism without without religious um, dimension. And, you know, things like the Day of Atonement you have in Judaism, like where you, you know, sort of basically apologise for things for that year and try to start again in your community and, like, you know, to make amends, you know, that, that, that you say, oh, like, I'm sorry, I did this to you. I'm sorry I said that, you know, let's move on together, you know, because again, it's for a bigger thing. It's not just for yourself. It's for the community. It's for the bond. It's for the social or, you know, for the Greeks, like civic friendship, it was for the city. Like if someone was acting out, you would help them, you know, not only because they were your friend and you cared about them, but because you cared about the city, you know, and so that protecting each other was also about protecting the city, you know, and you didn't want someone to like, be you know an addict or to be very upset or to be you know in not in good shape um because you had a shared uh object you know yeah absolutely there there's so many layers of kind of collective being together that we've we've shed by you know this this relentless focus on the individual and you know what what's in it for me essentially that's that's probably the the ethos of of our time um but i want to i want to leave it at that I want to ask you the question of the show because we're coming up on time here a little bit. Um, do you have a, um, a subversive thinker, uh, someone that's been you know, influential in, in your thinking that you think people should read more of or, or know about uh, or that you can recommend? 
Oh, loads. But um, I guess, you know, I was recently doing this course on Ivan Illich, as you mentioned, and he's a very, very interesting thinker. I mean, he's a sort of subversive Catholic. Um, he had some ties to anarchism, but, he, you know, but really he's a very idiosyncratic thinker. He um, is influential on people like Agamben to some extent. Illich is very famous for his critique of all of the major institutions, including um, schooling, education, but also uh, medicine. He wrote this very, very important book in the early 70s called Medical Nemesis, which is a kind of takedown of like big pharma and the kind of medicalization of uh, medicalized construction of the individual, if you like. Um, and, and you know, it, it's against the reliance on the state, for example, and it's extremely relevant today, I think, not only when we're talking about you know the the lockdown and 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 you know necessary uh like at least philosophical speculation and questioning of what is going on um in terms of these biosecurity measures and and Gambin obviously has pursued these questions um you know but but also i think in terms of thinking about positive alternatives like how to live together in a convivial way and how to construct um, yeah, necessary alternatives that don't rely upon those forms of dependency, um, negative dependency. So, you know, relying on the state rather than relying on each other. And I think that Illich is extremely timely. He also wrote a book about gender called Gender from 1982 that got him very, very, very cancelled. Um, but I actually think it's well overdue for a, um, a retro sort of, you know, rereading. Um, and I think actually a lot of what he's saying about vernacular gender and the separate worlds of men and women pre-industrial society um, and he's saying it in in the name of like a defense of of of, of women in particular, um, although he was attacked by feminists at the time, um, is actually very in keeping with a lot of the sort of post-liberal ideas that we're sort of talking about today. So I think, yeah, Ivan Illich would be would be kind of my my main guy at the moment. Absolutely. And and the course, uh, I know you've you've had a, a group now. Will this be a repeating uh, affair or will there be more? Um, I, I'm probably going to do lots of different courses, like I'm teaching at this Australian uh, centre called the Melbourne School of Continental Philosophy and also for GCAS. And like, so I do various online courses, but I, I'm sort of interested in going around different thinkers. I might do one on Peter Sloterdijk. Uh, I'm quite interested in talking about um, George Steiner had a series called The Roots of the Right, which is a very interesting um, selection of like right wing and reactionary thoughts um, under the sort of proviso or like the guiding idea that everybody should understand these ideas, right? Like it's not good to bury ideas that you feel like you might be opposed to. And I think, you know, in this era of new, you know, prurience and puritanical censorship, that actually to discuss ideas properly and and have, you know, serious dialogue and rather than just say, don't read that, don't read her, don't read him, um, is much better. So I'm kind of interested in exploring ideas that are not necessarily discussed in mainstream universities anymore, but also ideas that are perceived to be dangerous or contentious um, by people who are then telling other people not to read them. It's because I think everybody should read uh, read everything insofar as it's possible, given our limited time. I, I completely agree. And I think your um, your project is probably similar to what uh, an, another guest of mine, Michael Millerman, is doing as well. He's kind of this cartographer of anti-liberalism from from the right which is very exotic in terms of academic offering yeah i know i think he's brilliant i mean i look at what he's doing with like great admiration and respect you know i it, it is similar i think you know he's he's got different he's coming from different uh position but i yeah in terms of the kind of para-academic post-academic looking at you know potentially subversive or, or or unpopular ideas or you know things that are sort of sidelined um yeah i mean i'm completely uh on board with what he's doing for sure. Okay, 
Perfect. And uh, in terms of your current projects, I know your book will come out in, in February. Um, mm -hmm. Where can people find it? Everywhere, I guess. Yeah, unless they've run out of paper or, or it's, they, you know, been banned. <laughs> I'll just leak the PDF if that happens. Perfect. <laughs> um, and the, the other book is The One Dimensional Woman and uh, an, another place where, where people can find you. You're not on social media, are you? Um, no, not really. I have a, like a private Facebook, but it's sort of full up um, and it's just stupid anyway. But um, I have a sub stack, which is full of my poetic ramblings, uh, which is slightly deranged, but it, it, I like it. Uh, that's just like ninapower.substack.com whatever the suffix is calm, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Perfect. Well, please do sign up to that. Um, read Nina's books, sign up to her courses. Uh, and I, I want to thank you so much for, for coming on. I know this has been a long time coming. I've been a bit, uh, my head was in a cloud, so I'm, I'm happy. No, no, you, have a, you have a child. I, I totally respect that. Yeah, it's uh, it's been it's an interesting time to me, to be honest. Uh, learning, learning very fast, very, very steep growth curve. And, and yeah, a bit, a bit of a foggy time, but but good. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much. No worries. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible. So thank you 